Part Three, Chapter Ten of *The Luggage of Life*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. *The Luggage of Life*, by Frank W. Borum. Part Three, Chapter Ten, The Brow of the Hill. The brow of the hill has a divinity of its own. There is something distinctly spiritual, as well as something distinctly sublime, about a summit. That is why the heathen loved to build their altars there. How often, in the historical books of the Old Testament, we are told that the idolatrous people erected their shrines and raised their images on the high hills about Jerusalem. How the Aztecs delighted in rearing their strange temples, shaped like pyramids, on the loftiest peaks of Mexico, with the altar on the topmost pinnacle of the temple. And the same sure instinct has led men to lay their bones to rest on the brow of the hill. They wearily sought its silent and solemn sanctity at the last. We have all visited, at least in fancy, the resting place of Robert Louis Stevenson. Nothing more picturesque can be imagined, his cousin tells us, than the narrow ledge that forms the summit of Vea, a place no wider than a room and as flat as a table. On either side, the land descends precipitously. In front lies the vast ocean with the surf-swept reefs. To the right and left, green mountains rise, densely covered with the primeval forest. No firearms must be discharged about those slopes. The chiefs insist that the birds must be undisturbed, that they may raise about his grave the songs he loved so well. I saw the other day a striking picture of Cecil Rhodes's lonely grave on the crest of the mighty Matapos in Africa. Two lions from the valley beneath are standing on the great flat tomb and seem in harmony with the wild, romantic place. But I no longer hold the attention of my readers. Their thoughts have left Robert Louis Stevenson and Cecil Rhodes far behind and have visited the strange, lone resting place of Moses among the mountains of Moab. That was the grandest funeral that ever passed on earth. But no man heard the trampling or saw the train go forth. Perhaps the bald old eagle on grey Beth Peor's height, out of his rocky eyrie, looked on the wondrous sight. And Browning has expressed the same fondness for a mountain burial in his Grammarian's Funeral. Here's the top peak, the multitude below, live for they can, there. This man decided not to live, but no. Bury this man there? Here, here's his place, where meteors shoot, clouds form, lightnings are loosened, stars come and go, let joy break with the storm, peace let the dew send. Lofty designs must close in like effects, loftily lying. Leave him, still loftier than the world suspects, living and dying. Now I have simply pointed to these altars and monuments that deck the hilltops of the world in order to prove that there exists, in the very blood of the race, an instinctive reverence for the brow of the hill. We feel that summits are sacred. Why? That is the question. Let us investigate. Now, in attempting a solution of this alluring mystery, I must call to my aid two gentlemen of rare insight and of profound scholarship, Professor George Adam Smith and Mr. A. C. Benson. 
In treating of the 121st Psalm, the learned principle says, To the psalmist, the mountains spread a threshold for a divine arrival. Up there, God himself may be felt to be afoot. Whether we climb them or gaze at them, the mountains produce in us that mingling of moral and physical emotion in which the temper of true worship consists. So much for the principle. Now for the schoolmaster. It is good, writes Mr. Benson in one of his delightful essays, it is good for the body to climb the steep slopes and breathe the pure air. It is good for the mind to see the map of the country fairly unrolled before the eye. And it is good for the soul, too, to see the world lie extended at one's feet. How difficult it is to analyze the vague and poignant emotions which then and thus arise. A hilltop, remarks another writer, is a moral as well as a physical elevation. Now it is as clear as clear can be that the hunger of our hearts for the hills is only a part of the hunger of our hearts for the infinite. The instinct of the far horizon is indelibly engraven in our very nature. Go where you will, visit what city you like, and you will straightway be taken to some noble and commanding eminence to see the view. Surely this phenomenon requires some explanation. Even the most intelligent of the lower animals betray no love for the landscape. They know nothing of the passion of the far horizon. I have often ascended Mount Wellington at Hobart, and gazed entranced upon the magnificent panorama of land and sea that unrolls itself, in altogether indescribable grandeur at one's feet. The prospect is almost overpowering. But I have noticed repeatedly that whilst every member of the party turns in ecstasy to admire so glorious a landscape, the horses and dogs, man's most intelligent and sagacious companions, have deliberately turned their backs upon the magnificent landscape to forage for food on the bushy slopes nearby. The different behavior of the men and the animals is much more than a matter of degree. It is a contrast in kind. It is a direct line of cleavage. It is arresting and inviting. In one of his most captivating and suggestive passages, Mark Rutherford, in his Revolution in Tanner's Lane, tells how the boys of the tiny hamlet of Cowfold would, on a holiday, trudge the three dusty miles down the lane from the village to the main coach road and back again, just for the rapture of reading the wondrous words, To London, to York, on the finger-post at the end of the lane. The romance of the mysterious fingers pointing mutely down the winding road along which the coaches rattled, on their way to the great capitals, was an opening into infinity, to use Mark Rutherford's words, to the boys of Cowfold. It was the next best thing to a mountain peak. It is so with every boy. The instinct of the far horizon burns within him. He reads Jules Verne and R. M. Ballantyne, Captain Marriott and Captain Main Reed, G. A. Henty and Gordon Stables. These are his classics. He glories in boundless plains and impenetrable jungles, in pathless prairies and endless snows, in trackless deserts and illimitable oceans. He revels in a limitless landscape. His fertile fancy converts every hen-coop and dog-kennel into a wigwam or a crawl, every paddock into a prairie, every terrier into a tiger, and the boys of every neighboring school into a fierce and hostile tribe. He is always on an imaginary hilltop, looking out upon the four corners of the earth. He loathes the intimate 
and loves the infinite. There is evidently some subtle and mysterious ingredient in his composition that is totally absent in the makeup of your noblest horses and your finest dogs. The passion of the wide horizon, the instinct of the infinite, the spirit of the summit, tingles in his very blood. Yet, after all, it must be sorrowfully confessed that the hilltops never really satisfy. The horizon is always small, the landscape limited. We look out to sea, and we wonder what ships are sailing out there beyond the skyline. We gaze across the land, and we wonder what lies beyond the distant ranges. The peak is high and flushed at its highest with sunrise fire. The peak is high and the stars are high, but the thought of man is higher. Yet be quite sure that the hunger that the highest peak leaves unsatisfied is no mockery. It is to appease it that the churches live. For there is another hilltop. Then said the shepherds one to another, Let us here show to the pilgrims the gates of the celestial city. The pilgrims then lovingly accepted the motion. So they had them to the top of a high hill called Clear, and gave them their glass to look and they saw some of the glory of the place. Then they went away and sang this song. Thus by the shepherds secrets are revealed, which from all other men are kept concealed. Come to the shepherds then, if you would see, things deep, things hid, and that mysterious be. Let all the shepherds of all the flocks take note. The hunger for the hilltop is a very real and a very beautiful thing. It is not satisfied by rearing altars there. It is not appeased by planning, like Stevenson and Rhodes, to lie in stately silence there. There is no mountain peak among earth's loftiest ranges high enough to gratify the cravings of a single soul. The view is so restricted. Men are hungry for the wealthier vision that is to be seen from the summit of the hill called Clear, and it is for the shepherds to take these wistful pilgrims there. End of Part 3, Chapter 10 End of The Luggage of Life by Frank W. Borum